Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Bealey and this week my colleague Lenora is off climbing a mountain, but fortunately I've got a lot of company today in the form of our resident economist Chris Dillow, our trader and technical analyst Nicole Elliott and Russ Mould, who is investment director at AJ Bell. Part of the reason we've got so many guests today is I wanted to kick off with a bit of discussion about the turmoil we've been seeing in the markets since the start of the year and ask just how worried we should be about this. We've had a very dramatic start to the year across the majority of global economies. Stock markets everywhere have been crashing on fears of a slowdown in China and on the falling oil price, which doesn't seem to have found a bottom yet. And with oil oversupply, we don't know where it's going to stop. And we've also got a big commodities route. So all of these things are feeding into each other and spurring this general sense that the world is slowing down. Earlier this week, the FTSE reached bear territory, having fallen 20% since its April peak. And then we've had RBS analysts basically telling everyone to run for the exits and sell everything except high-yield bonds. On top of that, George Soros is predicting a recession. But then yesterday, Mario Draghi stepped in and has raised the possibility of further easing in March, which comforted markets today, which have rallied a little bit. So there seems a bit of a split between people arguing that actually this is a market overreaction and this is just a sell-off after several years years of bull markets and we don't need to be panicking. And then others who think, actually, this is something bigger. This is something to worry about. It's a deep-rooted issue in our major economies. And yes, we are on the brink of recession. So, Nicole, which camp do you fall into here? How dramatic are these moves and how worried should we be? They are big moves, but we are starting from very expensive levels. Just like when you get to very, very cheap levels, the rallies can be huge. It's a game of numbers, isn't it? The percentages, the maths changes. I'm very much in the camp of George Soros. Uh, He's not alone in what he's been saying at Davos either. Well-known Swiss investor Mark Farber and in the United States, Ray Dalio, who many put on a pedestal, are also in the camp that equities are still terribly expensive, are due a whopping correction or more. And they are opting, I would say, not high yield bonds, but only top quality ones. Are they saying we could be back at 2008 crisis levels or or are they just saying how bad is this in their eyes? Well, let's see. I mean, the Brazilian stock market is already at January 09 levels. So Mm. there are others that are already there. We've got there. The difference is, well, the States really is the standout where relative to everything else, their indices are still terribly, terribly high up and close, not that far off record highs. Mm. So that's the odd one out, really. There are other things that are really seriously in trouble. You know, the ECB with negative 30 basis points and two-year German Schatz trading at minus 45 basis points. And let's not even talk Switzerland or Japan. I mean, because there we get to, you know, I mean, things cannot be right if you're working with those sort of levels uh, Mm. in the cost of money. What do you think Draghi's kind of this implication that we could get more easing in March? Do you think that will help? Will that sort things out? Or is this going to be a a very short term rally? And actually, this is a deeper problem that we have. I think Mr Draghi sort of shot himself in the foot in his previous meeting where he didn't do enough. He didn't do what the market told him to do. (laughs) In a certain way, I think 
Ms Yellen has done the same thing, that there were an awful lot of market participants suggesting that there was no reason to raise US rates, but she just thought it was about time to do something, I think. Mm. And we're seeing here, even yesterday, James Bullard of the Federal Reserve noted that the inflation expectations in the United States by professional market participants uh, was at seven-year lows. So why are you raising rates when people Mm. are not expecting inflation? So I think both of those two central banks, and they are not alone. We've seen this before in Canada. Uh, We've seen this in Sweden. We've seen this to a lesser extent in Japan, where they say, oh, everything's hunky-dory. We're all back to normal. We can all breathe a sigh of relief and pat ourselves on the back, only to find three, six months later that they did the wrong thing. Mm. Chris, what do you think? Do you think this is all just the usual turbulence involved in equity investing or or is this something more serious? I think we've got to take a militantly agnostic position here. And Paul Samuelson famously said that stock markets have predicted nine of the last five recessions. But what we could add is that economists have predicted none of them. You know, and we've got to recognise that the economy is a complex emergent process which um, has inherently uncertain outcomes. So we honestly don't know. And I think one justification for the market's fall is precisely that uh, markets are wising up to just how uncertain the world is. And the way I would think of what, what we've seen is to think of share prices as the probability-weighted sum of payoffs in different states of the world, such that if we get a recession, share prices are low. If we get a boom, they're high. And and at any point in time, prices are the probability-weighted average of those outcomes. So as in they're kind of a temperature of sentiment or of how close we might be to recession or Um, not? Okay. Yeah, think of them as being a bet on different possible states of the world. And what's happened so far this year is that markets are raising the probability that they attach to... Um, the bad states. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually going into recession. What it means is that markets perceive that the possibility of a recession is higher than they thought a month ago. And at the moment, this is a really, really nasty prospect, because when interest rates are so low, and uh, as Nicole said, negative in, in some parts of the world, central banks don't have the ammunition to support share, share prices. And that means that if, we, if bad times do hit, then we're, we're lacking the insurance policy that we've had in the past. Right, as in that they, they've kind of been throwing all of the toolkit at the economy so far and there's not much left, there's not much further that we can go, is that what you're saying? Not, not if, if, if things get really, really bad. I think what, what the markets are doing is thinking that the possibility of a really disastrous outcome might not be very high, But if it does happen, it is really, really nasty. Mm. And that possibility has got to be embedded in share prices. And if that possibility increases only slightly, you know, from a low level to a slightly less low level, then you can see a large, large drop in the market. Mm. And just going back to the kind of the drivers that everyone is talking about, which are oil and China... There seem to be two two kind of views on China from, from the people I speak to. One, that this is a very dramatic slowdown and actually this is part of a long process which will affect the whole world. 
in that China is, is kind of failing to turn itself around from an investment led to consumption driven economy. And, you know, that that will affect demand across the world. And then others saying, you know, China is still growing. So maybe we're being overly negative about this. I mean, Nicole, what, what do you think of the prospects for China and how that will affect markets? It's not just China. Let's talk emerging markets as a whole. Mm. Basically, a lot of their stellar economic growth over the last decade and maybe 20 years for some is very much credit fueled. It's been not just overseas credit, domestic credit has been an absolute bonanza. So when you give people a lot of money suddenly at an affordable price, when they've never had the opportunity of anything like that before, it's no wonder that they go and spend like Billio. But 15 years later, when you're not quite sure that things are correctly priced or are worth buying in the first place, all it takes is for a few people to pull back and go, whoops, not so sure, let's stop. And the thing implodes on itself very quickly. And I think that is the problem for many emerging markets, which is too much credit, too quickly, too cheap. That has to be unwound. And then the question is, can we afford to unwind it very, very slowly as developed markets have done since 2008? Or is there a complete buyer strike where the only way to unwind your debt is by declaring yourself bankrupt? Wow. Okay. So that's quite a <laughs> quite a kind of negative possibility, obviously. I mean, I mean, Russ, the thing about these markets since the start of the year is it just seems that no no one has been safe it seems that funds and shares across the board have been falling i mean how how is all of this affecting uk investors i mean clearly it, it, it's not a pleasant prospect for everybody to see things down move down so quickly so fast but if you look at you know the market just say over the last month and we know investing is a long time game but just look over the last month since the Fed raised interest rates, and as Nicole said, that's got a lot of people scratching their heads as to why they did it. But if you look over the last month, there are still 14 FTSE 100 companies whose share prices are actually up. Now, I know there's two bid targets in there, SAB Miller and BG, but there's also names in there like Unilever, GlaxoSmithKline, Vodafone, National Grid. Ploddy, relatively safe, relatively defensive stock. So there's, there's generally a bolt hole somewhere. And if you look beyond equities, gilts have done well, the dollar has done well. And intriguingly, gold has actually started to put its head above the parapet after five years in investors' doghouse, and it's hovering around $1,100 an ounce level. So there are always potential bolt holes, but I admit they're not easy to find. And, and yes, sort of mainstream indices have, have taken a, a terrible beating. And in some ways, the themes that Chris and Nicole have outlined, the, the, the UK is, is particularly badly exposed to them. The FTSE 100 is, is predominantly banks, mining and oil companies with a few pharmaceutical stops, stops and insurers lobbed in on top. Uh, and in terms of the mix for the current environment where people, are, as Chris said, are now worrying about a, a recession or even a deflation, it's just not the most helpful mix right now. There are other markets that are probably, through their constituents, better set up to withstand the current environment. And, I mean, some people are saying, actually, this is time to buy things because there are, everything is fallen so far there are some things which um are good prospects either funds or stocks which are very cheap because people are kind of panicking i mean do you think that is the case and if so what what should investors be considering adding to in their portfolios i mean no matter how bearish or bullish you were a year ago you've got to be 20 percent more bullish now because things are 20 percent cheaper <laughs> and in the end nicole was saying valuation is the ultimate arbiter 
of any investment that you make. You can buy a good company at the wrong price and lose money and buy a bad company at the right price and, and make money. So in that respect, the valuation is really where you've got to start. And although earnings are, you know, are, are very volatile, if you look at trend earnings on a long-term basis and assume that things are sort of not going to drop in a massive hole, the UK is sort of in the in the low double digits, the low teens earnings-wise, PE-wise trend. That's sort of in line with its historic averages to slightly cheap now. So that is perhaps one stick upon which you can lean. And on the dividend yield basis, the market is looking cheap. Again, you obviously need to have security that those dividend yield forecasts are any good, and we'll, we'll probably come back to that later. Mm. But there are certain areas that are look, that, that are looking cheap, and again, there are one or two companies that, if you think the dividend yield is safe, are starting to look oversold. And you know, if you really wanted to be contrarian, the oils is probably where you'd start looking rather than the miners. And if you do think BP and and, and Shell can hold their dividend, and the oil does bounce, I know we've got that Saudi official this week saying he thinks oil is is oversold at where it is right now then that's probably the sort of place that you'd start in the knowledge that it is going to be very, very choppy and bumpy in the short term. And what do you think, Nicole? I know that previously you've been uh, slightly disparaging of people saying, you know, go and buy because things are cheap. <laughs> well, I mean, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. It's just old mantra, do you know what I mean? And I think this month has been a salutary lesson in that you don't try and catch a falling knife. My problem is I'm never really sure what is cheap. It's, you know, you think you've got it. You go to the post-Christmas sales and that, and you, you know, 50% <laughs> off, and you think, brilliant, you know? Mm. 20% off? Well, I wouldn't call that cheap, actually. Not yet. It is officially bear market territory. Call it what you want. But I don't think it's cheap. And as I say, we're starting from very expensive levels, not only in equities, but I think all of us would agree with UK property, property around the world, property in Canada, property in Australia. Do you know what I mean? It's just Mm. one of many, many classes of assets that have benefited, shall we say, from misallocation of cheap capital. I'm still worried that, you know, after cheap, it goes straight to poundland. (laughs) Um, and you end up with penny stocks uh, mm. or, or rubbish housing or, or slum landlord or something like that. You know, it can happen. Yeah. So be very careful with concepts of cheap and dear. OK. And, and Chris, in this week's magazine, you've talked about foreign currency being a good thing to hold in this climate. Why Why is that? Yeah, it's, it's quite simply that what normally happens in a financial crisis is that, is that sterling falls. And in particular, the last four occasions on which house prices have fallen, we've, we've seen sterling fall. So in that sense, um, holding foreign currency is insurance against a drop in UK house prices, you know, simply because foreign currency normally rises when house prices fall. OK. And, I mean, you've also, in this week's magazine, talked about whether or not we can predict what happens from here and whether we can kind of look at the past and get any sense of where equities might move in the future. And you've talked about something called the random walk hypothesis. What's, what's that? A random walk is a process in which the past doesn't predict the future. So the classic example is the roll of the dice. If you roll, if you roll a six this time, that tells you absolutely nothing about your chances of rolling a six next time. Now, in theory, share prices should follow a random walk. You know, the efficient market set says the hypothesis says that all information is in the price and information about the past should therefore be discounted. Now, what I decided to do this week is to actually test that theory because it's got a very simple implication. If the random walk is correct, 
then the volatility of returns increases with the square root of time, so that returns over a three-week period should be equal to weekly volatility multiplied by the square root of three. Returns over four weeks should be equal to weekly volatility multiplied by the square root of four. So what I did was I looked at returns over different uh, time periods from one week to 26 weeks ever since January 2000 and asked, well, does the random walk hypothesis hold? So as in, is, is this all random on a very yeah. basic level? Yeah. Okay. And it, it turns out that it doesn't quite hold, such that if you look at returns longer than a couple of weeks, you see that volatility is slightly less than you'd expect from a random walk hypothesis, such that returns over 13 or 14 weeks are about 15% less volatile than you'd expect if, if they were random. And what that is evidence of is that shares have a slight tendency to bounce back, such that a bad week is likely to lead to good weeks in the future and good weeks to bad weeks. That doesn't mean that a good week this week means a bad week next. You know, it's not quite as tight as that, but it does mean that a bad week over the next 10, 12, 13 weeks is more likely than not to lead to slightly better. Okay, so there could be a glimmer of hope. (laughs) That is, it's only a glimmer because I'm not sure how much 15% difference is. And of course, there's no assurance that the future will resemble the past. But that is slight evidence for the fact that people do tend to, to see value when the market has fallen. Okay. They, they, might, they, they might be wrong to see it, but even <laughs> if you're buying for the wrong reasons, share prices go up. So we could have a, a pattern there showing that things might improve from now. So sadly, obviously no answers as to what will happen next, but maybe some positivity to end <laughs> our tour of markets there. So now moving on to this week's portfolio clinic. This week we've got a very young investor. He's 23 years old and he's been investing for three years, which is impressive, I think. My own experience with investing at 20 but he wants to grow his portfolio and is keen to balance and diversify it. And his goal is to buy a house. Um, there are benefits here because he doesn't need the money instantly. Now, Chris, you've commented on this portfolio and he's earned quite a lot of praise for starting young. Uh, what are the benefits of starting at an age like 23? And what do you yeah. think of the general split of his portfolio? Yeah, well, there's two enormous benefits. One is the power of compounding. Quite simply, the longer you invest, the longer you've got your money to grow. And this is really, really powerful, such that I've worked out once that if you save for 30 years rather than 25 years, then the first five years that you invest for, you're in, you might well more than double your money wow. if, if the stock market does as well in the future as it has in the past. That's simply because those first five years are only need 25 years' worth of compound returns. And, and that, that's big money. That is impressive. And obviously, because he hasn't been saving for that long, he hasn't got a massive portfolio. What do you think of the general split of it, the general balance? My issue with it is that I think he's taking quite a lot of recession risk. OK, and what do you mean by that? Um, well, basically, um, he's holding the sort of assets that could do quite badly if we do fall into recession. And one of these is his peer-to-peer lending. Yeah. Now, peer-to-peer lending hasn't been going very long. We don't have much of a track record. But it's quite possible 
that if we do see a recession in which people default on their debts, that the returns on peer-to-peer lending um, w- w- will be very poor. Yeah, because he's, he's investing by a funding circle, isn't he? So, so this is direct investing in very small or early-stage businesses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And small businesses have quite a high failure rate anyway, mm. you know, um, e- even in normal times. And it could well be that that gets worse in bad times. Yeah, because he's actually putting quite a big chunk of the amount that he's putting aside every month into peer-to-peer. I mean, are there other issues with investing directly or is it mainly the risk of default? Well, one problem is that it can be hard to withdraw your money mm. you know, if, if you do need it. Now, he says he doesn't, um, but in good times, people do tend to say that they don't need the, need the money, only to discover that suddenly they do. And the other issue is that unlike bank deposits, your money is not in, insured by the government. Right. And th- there's a reason why you earn higher returns on peer-to-peer lending. Yeah, because the yield is high, isn't it? Something yeah. like, is it 7%, I think? But it, can, it, can, it can be, yes. Yeah. But, but there's uh, a reason for that. There's a reward for taking risk. Mm. Yeah. So what are other ways that he could... Because he's, he's got this interest, obviously, in pursuing kind of early-stage businesses, which a lot of people do have, this kind of idea of backing you know, the stars of tomorrow. Is there a way of doing that without investing directly or at a slightly lower risk? Well, there are private equity trusts, uh, private equity investment trusts, venture capital trusts and such like that, that you can, can invest in. Now, returns on those tend to be very, very variable. And that warns us that the fate of small businesses is itself very, very variable and very hard to spot. But your best bet is to, to buy a basket of them and hope that the the basket contains two or three winners mm. that will off, offset the four or five or six failures. So, so this I, would I would be... warn you that however you do it, it's risky and unpredictable. Yeah, so the advice there would be kind of choose a, a good private equity fund manager with, with a good track record and, and kind of trust him to choose or him or her to choose the businesses they think will succeed. Yeah, I'm afraid, I'm afraid so. There is some evidence, um, more from the United States than here, that if you've got a private equity investor who's got a good track record, that track record actually persists into the future in a way that it doesn't for quoted companies. Okay. So w- what matters in that sense is is the fund manager's track record to a greater extent than for other funds. Okay, that's interesting. Now, this investor is also keen to buy a house. That's one of his goals. And so he's highlighted the fact he's invested in a property tracker fund. He's kind of related those two things. But investing in a global property tracker is not the same as tracking the performance of the UK housing market, is it, Chris? No, simply because UK housing can can move at a different rate from overseas housing. Now, if we get the sort of global recession that Nicole worries about, then, then that's not a problem because house prices will fall around the world. But Andrew's problem is that he's worried that house prices will rise. And it's possible that UK house prices will rise at a faster rate than overseas, in which case his, his money won't keep up with his, his liability. You know, there, are, there are ways he can help himself. For example, there's a help to buy ISA in which the government is, in effect, subsidising people mm. who'd like to buy a house. And there are residential property funds in, in the UK that invest directly in UK housing. And from Andrew's point of view, if you regard a rise in UK house prices as a liability that you want to insure against, 
those might be a better match for that liability. Okay. Now, Russ, what do you think of this portfolio? He hasn't got that many funds. If you don't have a portfolio uh, or a, a very large portfolio, what's the best way to approach spreading the risk and diversifying your, your assets? No, I, mean, I think that the portfolio is actually very sensible in that there is some diversification in there. He's got a bit of emerging market. He's got some bonds. He's got some equities. He's got big caps. He's got small caps. And one advantage of the relative number of holdings is that it keeps the expenses down, which mm. has got to be a good thing. And I know I say that as a stockbroker, which may surprise, working for a stockbroker, which may surprise you, but keeping the expenses down it is very, very important. So you, you don't want too many holdings because it gets expensive and it gets difficult to manage. So I think in that respect, he's, he's, he's doing a lot of things right. If you're looking to spread your risk, clearly a fund can be a good way of doing that. Say you own the FTSE All World tracker or exchange ready fund, you've got access to probably around a 1,000 companies from, from 15 or 20 different countries instantly and at a very competitive price cost rate as well. If, if you want more than just, say, one asset class, you can look at things such as funds of funds, where a fund manager is actually paid to, to pick other funds or multi-asset funds, for example. The downside to those is that you, you do tend to pay a little bit more. Mm. I mean, interestingly, the, the, the Association of Investment Companies, the Investment Trust Body, has actually devised a new category of funds that's launched just this week called Flexible Investment. It's got nine or ten different investment companies in it, uh, and some of them invest in shares, private equity, commodities, hedge funds. So there's quite a broad range. They have different mandates. They have different styles, so you'll need to do your research. But you know, BlackRock Income Strategies has a yield of 5.5%, for example, which make actually the eye of some. Uh, but overall, that grouping of nine or ten investment trusts that the annual fee is around 1.1%, which again is higher than you get for the average for the average investment trust, or and definitely a lot higher than for the average tracker. But they, for example, would give you access to a very wide range of asset classes in just one vehicle. So that might be one way of doing it in exchange, of course, for that higher fee. Yeah, because he is he is quite concerned to keep fees down. But yeah, very that's, sensibly too. Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that's um that's some good ideas. Okay, thanks for that. And to see an exact breakdown of of what he holds and the advice, take a look at the magazine this week. Now we're going to move on to actually some more company news with Shell and BG. Now this week we've looked at the impending vote on Shell's 47 billion takeover of rival BG. I'd say to say this deal is pretty major. In April last year, when it was first announced, people were calling it the first oil supermerger in over a decade. But it has attracted some controversy because of the falling oil price. Now, we've looked at this in the personal finance section because major fund houses and insurers are some of the biggest shareholders in companies like this. So their say will have a big impact on which way the vote goes. So we wanted to kind of see what their take was on it. Back in April... It was seen as a good thing for both sides, but then Standard Life recently came out and slammed the deal in a statement arguing that Shell was overpaying for BG because of the fall in the oil price. Uh, it was obviously roughly over $100 a barrel back then and has now fallen below 30 and seems to keep falling. Um, the other side of the argument is that Shell comes off the winner here because while Shell has dwindling reserves, BG's year-on-year production is up 16%. And by tying up, Shell could get access to BG's liquid natural gas reserves, which is exactly what Shell wants to do. So we know that Kames, Rathbones and several Henderson AXA funds all voting for the deal on the basis that they think it's a good strategic move for Shell. Russ, what do you think of the deal and, and who kind of comes off better? Well, I think, first of all, I would expect the deal to go through, and I think we'll probably see more of them. You've actually started to see the first tentative signs 
of merger and acquisition activity in the oil market. Premier Oil is bidding for some assets in the North Sea. You've got uh, Norway Stat Oil buying some assets from Sweden's London. And obviously this deal was announced a while ago. And I actually expect there to be more of these. And I guess you need to look at it from two different perspectives, you know, from the Shell side and the BG side. I think from the BG side, if there are concerns that Shell is overpaying, then as a BG shareholder, you know, you're, you're probably on the right side of the deal, quite frankly. Yeah. If it's a cash and stock transaction, you probably get the best of both worlds. You get you get 383 pence a share of cash, and then you get 0.4454 Shell shares. You get if you believe in the long-term oil market, which you presumably do because you own BG in the first place, then you get to take some cash off the table and hedge your risk and you still get some exposure to, to the industry th- th- through Shell. So I think for BG, if you've got it, I'd be sticking with it, because you, you, you are probably, if there is an overpayment, you're the beneficiary. Mm. Shell, it's probably a little bit harder, as you said. There is the argument that they get access to Brazil, to liquid natural gas, to deep water, that there's the cost synergy argument there. Uh, and yeah, it's possible, given that this is a cash and stock deal, not just a cash deal, but on a very long-term basis, you know, Shell becomes the world's biggest oil and natural gas producer, which has got something that should be some economies of scale there. Um, but yeah, in, in the short term, I think you're probably more comfortable looking at this from the BG perspective than you are the Shell perspective. And so for people holding funds, maybe UK equity income funds, mm. which sectors will be most impacted by any share price swings that come out of this, do you think? Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Shell is, is, you know, you would expect to be a staple of the UK equity income sector, particularly given the dividend yield is over 9% right now. BG won't feature there. The dividend yield is down at around 2%. But I've actually just had a quick look at the top 10 performing equity income funds over the last five years and the top 10 yielding equity income for UK equity income funds right now. Mm. And the number that have exposure to Shell or BP or BG in their top 10 is very, very small. And I, I guess you could perhaps argue that's why they're the top 10 performers in, in, in theory, because obviously these stocks haven't done very well. Uh, of the top 10 performers, only two that I could see actually had exposed to Shell, which was Royal London UK Equity Income and Threadneedle UK Equity Alpha Income. And of the top 10 yielders, yes, yeah, Shell was a lot more prevalent there. There were half a dozen of them with exposure, Insight Equity Income, Premier Optimal Income, for example. Um, but intriguingly, the, the really successful what, in terms of capital growth and, and high-yielding equity income funds aren't terribly exposed here right now. So let's flip it round the other way. If the gentleman from Saudi Aramco is correct, the chairman who was speaking at Davos this week, and the oil may bottom this year, these funds have actually got a really big decision to take, which is do they start getting back into oil? Because most of them look to be underway at the sector right now. So you could actually spin that on its head. That if, and I say it's a big if, oil does start to rally, then actually these funds will have to start piling in and that is potentially a positive for those sort of stocks later on. So I wouldn't you know, want to portray it as, as all negative. Equally, in terms of oil, there are potential beneficiaries of weak oil. Asia, Japan, India, certain industries like airlines, they've generally been sold off indiscriminately as well. So I'm not sure that oil is, is the cause of the problems. I think, as Chris was saying earlier, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of the market pricing in recession fears which weren't there previously. So there are some potential long-term beneficiaries. Uh, and if you look back over the global economy, Recessions have always been caused by oil price spikes, not by oil price decline. So this is a, a bit of a funny situation right now. Yeah, it is, it is a strange situation. And we have been talking throughout last year about oil price beneficiaries um, in emerging markets and things. But obviously that... The, oh, no. Yeah, well, exactly. But the emerging markets are such a difficult case to make currently. Well, that, well um, I guess that's Nicole's point about the debts, isn't it? And yeah. Have been, you know, if there was a, a beneficiary of QE economically, 
and not just an asset price inflation terms. It probably was emerging markets. Mm. The money flooded there looking for premium returns. That enabled governments and corporations to borrow you know, at rates that looked good from a Western perspective and probably looked good from the borrower's perspective. The problem now is the borrowers are stuck with the debt. It's often dollar-denominated debt, and the dollar's going against them as well. So I think that's why emergency markets probably have suffered. In that they've been a growth story, but now it looks like, again, that the growth is slowing down at a particularly inconvenient time. Yeah, but, I mean, coming back to Shell and BG, you were mentioning their dividend yields, and one kind of short-term issue for Shell shareholders is whether or not this dividend is sustainable. And this is a broader trend uh, across the UK equity income sector for funds investing in stocks for income. Because, I mean, we've had a lot of big dividend cuts across FTSE last year, and it looks like we might have more this year. So, I mean, which which stocks do you think are the most kind of, or potentials in line for dividend cuts and, and which kind of funds will be affected? Yeah, I mean, there were, I think, eight FTSE 100 companies cut or talked about cutting their dividend last year. And, and if you look at the, the FTSE 100 index right now, uh, it's yielding over 4%. And unfortunately, I'm old enough because I started as a fund manager in 1991 to remember an old rule that any dividend yield that was more than 1.5 times the UK 10-year gilt yield needed very, very close scrutiny and was potentially suspect. Now, you know, QE has probably twisted that round a little bit with the 10-year gilt where it is. That roughly means any yield north of 3%, you need to be doing your homework on. And you've got the top 10 in the index with yields all of more than 6. So, well, then what you need to go back to is, well, look at the earnings cover. And not just analyst forecasts going forward, because they're notoriously unreliable, but you probably need to do a bit of donkey work and look back at, you know, what the company's earnings power has been over the past decade, take an average, and then see how that compares to the dividend forecast. And that might give you a little bit of comfort, or it may give you, you know, serious pause for thought. Because if you look in the top 10 right now, highest yielders, only Old Mutual has got cover more than two times. Now, all right, you can make an allowance for SSE. It's a plodder utility. There's guaranteed cash flow. You're pretty safe there. But if you're looking at some of the others, I mean, which ones would you raise question marks over? And I think, you know, the share price action tells you that BHP, Billiton, and Rio Tinto, where the yields are, you know, sort of 7 8% and, and more than 10%, with Rio's cover at 1 and BHP Billiton's at 0.4, they look particularly exposed. Um, I'd also be a little bit concerned. I know that Sir Andrew Whitty at Glaxo has been absolutely dogmatic that he won't cut the dividend, and mm. John Fallon at Pearson has said the same thing there. But again, with cover of 1 at Glaxo, 1.2 at Pearson and yields of 67%, I'd be a bit nervous if things got, if trading did get any tougher. And again, people are looking at those big oils, as, as you've said, with Shell and BP, both at one time's earnings cover, but they've got fairly limited levels of debt. I know Shell's muddying the waters with the BG deal, but they've got fairly limited levels of debt. They can probably pay out of the balance sheet for a year or two. You wouldn't want them to do it any longer than that because then you're starting to weaken the core of the company. But I think if any of those top 10 probably can muddle their way through, I'd be more confident in the oils doing it than it would be the miners or, say, Glaxo or, or, or Pearson right now. OK, well, thanks. I mean, this, this is an issue for UK uh, income investors in funds and in stocks. And online this week, we've got some stories about whether you would be better protected in investment trusts or open-ended vehicles when it comes to your income or your dividends being cut. So that's worth taking a look at. And our funds tip in the magazine this week is also related to income and to diversifying to protect your dividends. So take a look at this week's magazine for that too and that's all we've got time for this week so it just remains for me to thank our guests Chris Dillow, Nicole Elliott and Russ Mould and we'll be back next week
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.